Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian bringing you another thrilling episode of Monday Madness from Rare Petro on July 12, 2021. I hope you're all having fun in the sun now that we're a little bit deeper into summer. This past weekend, I went up to Horsetooth Reservoir in Fort Collins to go stand up paddleboarding with my girlfriend just around the edge. After about 30 minutes out on the water and maybe a quarter mile down the reservoir's coast, a nice man in a Department of Natural Resources boat pulled up to let us know it was actually illegal to operate a paddleboard without a life preserver in the state of Colorado. Now, I wanted to ask, isn't a paddleboard a sufficient flotation device? But thankfully, I decided to keep my smart comments to myself, and the aforementioned nice man gave us an expensive citation and a free boat ride back to the crowded beach where we launched from. Now, as a guy who grew up on the Mississippi River, and a girl who has multiple years of experience as a professional raft guide, we were pretty pissed. But nonetheless, a law is a law, even if you didn't know it existed. So hopefully, I can save you a headache and a hefty fine with this story. But I know you didn't come here to listen to me passively and aggressively complain about a government agent behind the safety screen of the internet. You came here to get filled in on all the biggest current events surrounding oil and gas. So we start with our statistics. First, of course, WTI pricing. Once everyone got back to work last Tuesday, we were all talking about OPEC's failure to agree on production as Saudi and Russia wanted to extend the cuts while the UAE said it was time to open the taps. The resulting frenzy pushed WTI to nearly $77 per barrel before it started a multi-day downward spiral. It landed at almost $71 flat on Thursday, but spent the remainder of the week climbing up to the high $74 range. This morning, it fell a little bit, but has since bounced back. We are currently sitting at about $73.96. I want to point out that the price had many opportunities to dip below $70 on the news, but each time it fell that low, it bounced right back up. Not only that, but the spread between Brent and WTI is only $1.14 at the moment. It continues to get tighter and tighter, which is usually indicative of some kind of instability. These two benchmarks are typically not worth the same due to their different chemical composition and uses. Things are going to get a bit hectic in the international markets if this spread continues to decrease, as it is a huge fundamental factor for many. Next, one of the best performing metrics of the year, the rig count. Well, on a percentage basis, that is. This week proves to be another good week, with four rigs added domestically, bringing the U.S. to 479 total, which is 221 more rigs than we had one year ago today. Funnily enough, none of the major basins saw much change. The Utica added a rig, and then it was pretty much radio silence for the rest. Not even the Permian saw any added rigs this week. If we look from a state perspective, we saw that everything is still big in Texas as they added two rigs. Otherwise, Louisiana, Wyoming, West Virginia, and even Ohio added a rig each to their total, with Pennsylvania being the only state to lose a rig. Dead even split between oil and gas for targeted fluids, but nearly every one of those new wells will be horizontal. Pretty standard stuff here. Little slow overall, yes, but still a move upwards. Next, we gotta check where we are at with our inventories. While it is definitely fun to hear it from me, I'd argue it's a little more fun to read on our website. Plenty of pictures, plenty of graphs keep you up to date, so follow us on LinkedIn so you don't miss the next episode published on Thursday, and you just might have the opportunity to have another drink with that Thirsty Thursday report. For those of you who missed it, the API seemed to think the days leading up to the holiday weekend would not take much use of crude products or fuels as they estimated a drawdown shy of 4 million barrels. The reality is that they were, yet again, 
far too modest with their estimates, as it was actually double the estimate at nearly 8 million barrels. The EIA ended up making a prediction that was slightly larger at just over 4 million barrels, but their actual report revealed that, just like the API, they too were too modest, as they revealed drawdowns of 6.9 million barrels. The EIA's numbers show that we're down nearly 48 million barrels in 2021 alone, even with those massive builds in early March. Two weeks ago, we saw minor drawdown in gasoline inventories. Last week was a kick in the pants with a small build of 1.6 million barrels that put gasoline right in the middle of its historical five-year range. This week, however, we saw an inventory draw of 6.1 million barrels. This is the largest gasoline draw we've seen since about February of this year. In other gasoline-related news, the president urged OPEC to open its taps despite doing his damnedest to limit oil production domestically. Why, you might ask? In order to obtain, quote, affordable, reliable energy, including at the pump, end quote. Until OPEC gets their act together and figures something out, Biden has decided to take matters into his own hands and end $90 billion worth of tax breaks for oil and gas companies in order to provide America with more expensive gasoline and energy? I don't quite understand that one. Either way, huge draws on crude and gasoline, and it's quite possible that the next inventory report will reveal propane is lower than its five-year average, so good news there as well. And now that I'm thinking about it, really good news all around. Sustained $70 barrel, more rigs, and less stock stored away. Chalk that up to a win. Next, we've got some current events to catch you up on. First, we've got quite a bit of news around Pemex and Mexico. So Pemex released a statement in regards to that ocean gas fire we saw a little over a week ago. Apparently, there was an electrical storm accompanied by heavy rain near the platform, which it said caused pneumatic pump gas turbo compression equipment to go out of operation. Basically, storms caused electronics to fail. As soon as that happened, a leak was detected in the same pneumatic equipment that was in disarray, which allowed gas to travel up to the surface of the ocean, only to be ignited by the electrical storm. To me, this situation sounds incredibly unlucky and even still a little bit fishy. I'm sure failure for some of the pneumatic systems could have caused the pipe to burst because that leak, as they were calling it, was massive and would have been detected earlier. Still, their awful track record that we reviewed in last week's episode leads me to believe there were still actions and policies that could have prevented this accident. Either way, they were able to get it under control in a short five hours, so perhaps this situation will shed some extra funding on the facility to make sure an accident like this never happens again. In addition to this announcement, we also have some midterm election insights for Mexico. Right now, President Obrador is running the show, with midterm results showing his ruling coalition could soon lose control of the qualified majority in the lower house of Congress. If support falls from qualified majority to a simple majority, it will prevent President Obrador from being able to push sweeping legislative or constitutional reforms like he did with the Zama oil field. Didn't you hear about that? A private U.S.-based consortium led by Talos Energy discovered significant reserves in the field. I'm talking a lot of gas, a lot of oil, massive stuff. Unfortunately for that consortium, 40% of the reserves ran into a territory that's already kind of operated by Pemex, and this is why Obrador awarded his own country almost half of the spoils, despite really putting nothing into that exploration process. If this is to continue, it means no private operators will want to explore and experiment within the territory of Mexico as they risk losing everything they may have worked for, and if you ask me, that's only going to decrease the amount of innovation and experimentation in those fields. 
While this is only one of the issues revolving around the transition to a simple majority, it is likely going to cause some big changes for the country and even operators internationally. Since we spent time talking about our southern neighbors, we may as well head on over the border to the north into Canada. Several industry executives are weighing in on what they believe is required to make Canada's oil extraction much more green. Fortunately, there is a consensus on the cost, but that cost is quite high. Right now, Canada has to put a significant amount of energy into extraction and processing of the hydrocarbons in its tar sands, which makes it emission heavy. What I mean by that is, you can't exactly just bring fluid to the surface, send it off, refine it. They have to dig through lots of solids, put in lots of heat, put it in transformer facilities. It's pretty energy intensive. Yeah, you still come out net positive, but the emissions associated are far greater than most other places in the world. There is hope with the implementation of carbon capture utilization and storage, which you know is CCUS, but those systems have the hefty price tag of $60 billion estimated if implemented before 2050. The CEOs of both Suncor and Cenevus Energy mentioned that operators in Canada are going to need the government's help to fund these projects should anyone hope for them to finish. Both companies are working together on the Net Zero Carbon Initiative to reduce the impact operators have in the tar sands. They mentioned the transaction will require significant investment on the part of both industry and government to advance the research and development of new and emerging technologies. I don't know where you see this going, but I know the United States government would be hesitant to shell out that money for oil and gas, despite how much they print. Either way, while it is for a great cause, it certainly has a high cost, and I'll be excited to see where Canada has gone with this project in 5-10 to 10 years from today. They know something has to be done, it just might come at the cost of much more expensive energy that is subsidized by who? That's right, you and me, the consumers who use it. You can say what you want about the energy transition, but we can all agree that it is anything but boring. But that is the end of our time together. Yes, I know it was fun, but believe it or not, Rare Petro does other things besides content generation, so I've got other work to do. If you'd like to see what other engineering and tech services we offer to thought leaders within the industry, please go to rarepetro.com. While you're there, we have plenty of other content to feed that insatiable hunger for knowledge on oil markets and current events. If you can't find what you're looking for with that search bar, please send us an email at podcast at rarepetro.com and perhaps we can put together a little segment on something of your choosing and you'd also be entered into a little giveaway for some Rare Petro swag. So thanks again for tuning in. This has been Tavis Killian with Rare Petro. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody.